0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Legendary actress and singer, Rita Moreno, joins the Post to discuss her new documentary, Rita Moreno, Just a Girl Who Decided to Go For It, and The Power of Representation. Let's listen. Good afternoon, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Arelise Hernandez, a reporter with the Washington Post. Rosita Dolores Alberio. You know her as Rita Moreno. She is among the few to have won a Peabody, Oscar, Emmy, Tony, and Grammy, and she's now the subject of a new documentary premiering at Sundance this week titled Rita Moreno, Just a Girl Who Decided to Go For It. It is my pleasure to welcome Rita Moreno. Bienvenida.
1: Thank you. Gracias. My goodness. Um, you should say your name slower because I'm telling you right now, the American ear doesn't hear, at least. say it. <laughs> Come
0: on, come on, say, uh, Hernández. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. So, uh, we're just gonna go ahead and get started. Uh, and let's start okay. at the beginning. Puerto Rico, uh, That's your island.
1: An old lady.
0: <laughs> well, I'm taking you back because you took us back in, in the documentary as well as in your memoir, uh, Puerto Rico looms large in your story. But how did leaving home, Tujlita, shape what you understood about who you are? And why was the move to New York so difficult?
1: The move to New York, uh, uh, the idea of it was wonderful. I was excited. My mom made it sound like it was an adventure, which indeed it was. Not exactly the kind I would have in mind. However, um, it was difficult in many, many respects. First of all, we arrived and uh it was freezing and i had never known a cold weather like never. that in my life a young life and uh i remember being on the bus on the way to <clears throat> our uh digs in the bronx which was my aunt my titi's uh apartment and i said to my mother there's no there's no leaves on the trees what happened and she said the equivalent of that's called winter honey and uh that was one of the first shocks, and I have to tell you the cold was brutal. Then, uh, my mother put me into uh, uh, kindergarten and in public school. And the first day was really was really rough. I didn't speak a word of English, not a word. And none of the kids spoke uh, Spanish because for one thing, the diaspora. The Puerto Rican diaspora didn't happen until after I arrived. And uh, that, <clears throat> that, was, that was really tough. And it was one of the very first tests I had. This one was, okay, can you uh, live with this? Can you, uh, can you make this work? And uh, I did learn something really quickly, and that was that uh, uh, you sink or you swim. And I just seemed to have the kind of character that said, I'm okay, I'm going to swim, whatever the hell that means. And that's how it happened. But it was not easy. And uh, I, you know, got called terrible names by kids and all kinds of, I ran into all the usual stuff. Badness, spick was one of, that's one of the first words I learned in English, truly. Spick. Now nobody even knows that word. Which is kind of odd. Well, you said in,
0: you know, that you felt this sense of unworthiness that sort of stalked you like a like a backup dancer, I think is the way you said it in your memoir. Where did that come from?
1: That's where that comes from. Look, very very simply, when you're a child, a child is a very tender creature. And they are they they are a receptor of just about everything that is thrown at them. They don't understand what's being thrown at them, but they absolutely react to it. And if you are told often enough that what you are is uh, without value and uh, without worth, you believe it. The problem is you don't understand why you're not worthy, like some of the other kids, but you accept it. And I grew up thinking that uh, someone like me, and it had to do with being Puerto Rican uh, was not worth much. And I never told my mother about the kids calling me bad names because I instinctively knew that there was nothing she could do about it and that I would only upset her.
0: But did you grow up with any sort of counter messaging, you know, affirming your, your Puerto Rican identity, your, your otherness? I mean, did you have a source from where you could draw, you know,
1: sort of, again, the counter message? Not at I had no role model. There were no role models. Who's going to be a role model in those times for me? None. I eventually chose one, which is Elizabeth Taylor, because she was uh, my age in and my, and my teens. And uh, that was about it. She was my age and she was a star and she was exceedingly beautiful. And uh that's she is the one I modeled myself on. Very unrealistic, but uh what else was I gonna do?
0: Well, you said that you wanted to be in the movies since you could say the word movie. Uh, Where did that spark come from? I mean, is that that from your mom and and sort of always being a dancer and and having that, you know, attention from your family? Where'd that come from?
1: No, no, that came from Puerto Rico, from Dancing for Grandpa. He would put on a record. I don't even know if you know what a record means. A disc, okay? And he'd say, baila, Rosita, or Rosinita. That's what he called me, Rosinita. And uh, I would dance for him, and I loved it. I loved doing it, but I also adored the attention that I got. I thought, this is neat. I want to do more of this and for more people. (laughs) And, you know, I also think that sometimes people are wired in certain ways because I've been asked so many times, well, is there anything else you could have uh, done that you would have been interested in? It never occurred to me because that's what I wanted to do from the beginning, from dancing with, for grandpa. That just immediately sparked some kind of life in me that said, this is what you're going to do. At the time it was dancing and, you know, shaking my little booty to a salsa record. But uh, eventually it turned into other things. I began to sing and then I wanted to be an actress and, you know, everything followed quite naturally. but. Uh, I never wanted to do anything else. Ever, ever, ever. And was if you're going to ask huh? What? Or no, go ahead. You no, know, no, I was going to say, if you're going to ask me, would you, what would you have done had you not done this? I probably would have been a very good uh, psychotherapist or psychologist because what is acting but behavior? And, and, uh, and I was one of those kids who was extremely uh, instinctive. Um, probably because I became so sensitive from being called such bad names, I you know what I had antennae all over me. But um, I would have been, I think I would have been a very good psychotherapist.
0: So let's move to you getting to Hollywood. Did you have any expectations uh, for yourself in the kind of roles uh, that you would like to play, and what was it oh, like yeah. instead? To take roles, oh. uh, excuse me. <laughs>
1: Did I ever have oh expectations? Wow! I got to Hollywood and I'd been seeing. I loved movies. I just adored movies, and um, I thought I would be you know someone like Elizabeth Taylor. I have tried very hard to look like her, and I did rather well with that waist cincher, a little help on top, all kinds of things like that. And uh, I was deeply, deeply disappointed when. I found that they only saw me as this little Spanish character. And uh, sometimes I think if I had had darker skin, I would have had more roles. But having a Hispanic name and having fair skin didn't match their image of what a uh, a uh, Hispanic person looked like. And so a lot of... Uh, dark makeup and suit and accents and that was my life in movies I was heartbroken actually I was very very disappointed and uh here's the heartbreaking thing I remember asking my agent would you submit me for this part in this uh, script because uh you know we would get scripts sometimes at the uh, agency and I say oh I, I think I could do this part and uh I would ask the agent to submit me for that part so that the producer could see me or even audition me. And he would come back and say, oh, they don't want to see you. They don't even want to take a look. Why? Because of the name. Really because of the name, it was crazy. It was, it, it was offensive and it was terribly hurtful. Mostly it was hurtful. It was heartbreaking. I could never, I mean, not to, to even be able to see someone and say, hey, hello, hello, I'm Rita Moreno, and uh, I'd like to read this scene for you. And i mean to have at least the opportunity to do that. No, never happened. Never happened.
0: So based on that experience, it didn't sound like Hollywood knew what to do with a Puerto Rican, with Puerto Ricans, didn't know Puerto Ricans. And as such, Puerto Ricans are not generally known for, you know, hiding our identities in any way. I mean, we we put it out there, <laughs> with, you know, like a flag. But I mean, at some point you did say that you hated being Hispanic. What parts of yourself did you feel like you had to hold back uh, when you were in Hollywood? And, and when did you decide that you had had enough?
1: I didn't wanna be Puerto Rican because I found out very early in life that... uh, Would you please leave the picture of you on? Because it's nice to be able to see you when I'm speaking. Engineer, thank you. Uh, I didn't like being Puerto Rican. I didn't like being Hispanic because I found out very early in life from five on that it was not a good thing. In In my experience, it was not a good thing to be a Hispanic person. And, uh, you know, I really grew up with such feelings of, uh, of self-hatred. It was just terrible. And again, it was not something I shared with my mother because I just felt that uh, uh, she couldn't do anything about it. And I was right. When did you decide,
0: though, that you had had enough that, you know, I'm going to reclaim my identity, that, you know, yo soy puertorriqueña and, and no one's going to take that from me?
1: Oh, I love the way you speak Spanish. That's great. <laughs> uh, it took a very long time, really. I think I was doing a play in, um, I did a lot of uh, summer theater and winter theater in, in uh, different cities because it was the only way I could do real parts. So I was doing a, a Tennessee Williams play and I'll never forget it. And uh, after the play was over and we were taking bows. The audience went crazy for me. They applauded and they whistled and they cheered. I've never, I never had that kind of reaction ever, ever in my life until then. And uh, I went home literally floating. I went back to the hotel and I thought, I can make a difference. I really thought just that. I can, I can make people laugh, I can make people cry. I'm good at what I do. And I never really, really believed that about myself. And uh, I always thought that I was just kind of lucky, that whenever I got a part in something, I was just, I lucked out. There was nobody else who could, they felt could do it, something like that. But when I uh, saw that reaction, and it was happened every night from then on, after opening night, uh, I was thrilled and delighted. It was a great experience, but I didn't really come into my own as a Hispanic person till I got the Oscar. Took that long, but I was in therapy for a long time too. You know, while I was there, while I was uh, working, I was in therapy and it's the best thing. I have to say it's the best thing I ever did for myself.
0: Was there something you learned in particular through therapy about your identity that, that, you know, has been a, a big lesson?
1: Absolutely. I learned that I did have value. Oh, I learned, I had, I was very lucky because I don't know if you know this, but finding a therapist is a very difficult thing. And most often people have to go to three, four, maybe even five people before they're happy with that particular thing. I was lucky. I loved this man and uh, I was with him for the eight years that I was in and out of therapy. And uh, he taught, he, he made me understand that I had value and that I, had, that I was special. What he was really saying was, every person is special. I just heard what he said to me. And he said, you are special. He said you have a lovely sense of humor. You are very intelligent. That knocked me off my heels because I always felt I was very dumb. I, um, I quit high school in my second year because I went to work as a dancer in nightclubs. I was underage, but we somehow managed to do that. So uh, it was he. It was he who really, really turned me around about myself. Now, that doesn't mean that you accept something like that right away. If you feel that unworthy, it's going to hang around for a long time. And I want to tell you something interesting. Well, I think it's interesting about me anyway. Um, There is still a part of me, there is still a part of me at 89 for Pete's sake, that when something doesn't go right, sometimes something that's meaningful to me, Is this little creature, I call her little Rosita. I "I told you you couldn't do it. Ha 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 ha. And the measure to me of being an adult is being able to say to that little nasty little girl, Go to your room.
0: Well, Rita, in that process of coming into your own, you talked about uh, in the documentary how Anita became a role model for you, right? How, explain, explain why. How did that happen?
1: Anita is a character who has a sense of herself, and she thinks she's pretty hot stuff, which is wonderful. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I never knew what it was to feel that way, and when I did West I story, I didn't feel that way, and. Uh, She has a sense of dignity. She has a sense of identity. She respects herself. I never, I never went through that until I started to go into therapy, but only started. I'll tell you how bad it was in the scene in West Side Story where Anita gets pushed around. We used to call it the neo-rape scene where the the, uh, jets are pulling up her skirt and calling her, you know, Uh, uh, spick and pig and Puerto Rican pig. After we rehearsed it for two days, I suddenly, in the middle of the scene when we were shooting, started to cry. And I ran to uh, to the candy store counter and I sat on one of those stools and put my head on my arms and I could not stop crying. And I was crying because I was also mortified, embarrassed, but hurting so badly. And I remember thinking, but I thought that was all over. I thought that was done. And that's why I think that little girl still exists in me who says, nah, 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 nah. She's still there. But it's a measure of uh, how grown up you are, you know, when I can say, get out of here, go to your room. But obviously I'm a very damaged, I'm a very damaged person, I think, who has managed, despite that, to carry on in life and and enjoy life. I adore life. I love to laugh. I'm raucous, but then a lot of Puerto Ricans are raucous. We love to laugh.
0: That's that's certainly true. you know, coming into your own, you win the Oscar. You know, wh- why was it hard to find meaningful roles after after you won? And what stories did you want to tell now that you were at that point in your career?
1: It was impossible to find. Here's what happened after West Side Story. I got an Oscar and people, some people forget that. I also got the uh, Golden Globe. And uh, I thought, yay. I'm finally, you know, I'm being acknowledged. I'm being recognized. Am I hearing something odd? I'm hearing another voice.
0: Oh, that, that's a production team. <laughs> Don't worry about oh, it.
1: Production team, <laughs> shut up. So, <laughs> I know we're on live. Uh, I said to myself, with the Oscar in hand and with the... <clears throat> With the Golden Globe, okay, that's it. I'm not going to do these kind of roles unless it's something wonderful like West Side Story uh, anymore. Well, I showed them. I didn't do a movie for seven years after West Side Story. I was offered nothing but uh, gang movies uh, on a much lesser scale and uh, uh, coffee pourers, I call them Cafe Bustelo housewives. And uh, <laughs> But I didn't work for a very, very, very long time. So uh, my heart was broken. My heart was absolutely broken. Couldn't get a job. Not that I wasn't offered any, but they were all that, and I really had made a promise to myself, that part of my life is over. And uh, ha-ha, I showed them. It was heartbreaking.
0: Well, it sounds like one of several heartbreaking moments in your career. In in the I documentary, had I was, uh, had a
1: few.
0: Right, uh, and in the documentary, you talk about one that particularly shocked me. It was so painful to watch you tell the story about what happened with your agent, and it was clear that it was very hard for you too. Why did you
1: decide to open up about that? I think that I wanted to talk about that because I, it's an experience that many, many, many women have shared. Now, you've deliberately not said what it was about. Is that on purpose?
0: I wanted you to tell the story, if you could.
1: Oh, okay. No, I, <clears throat> I thought you were tell, giving me a message. No, I was uh, raped. I didn't even know what it the name... I didn't know there was a name like that, honestly. Uh, my agent invited me to do something. It was something fun, like go to the circus with him. And I said, oh, great, I'd love that. And I went to his apartment, he said, meet me in the apartment. And I went to his apartment and uh, he offered me a drink, which of course I didn't want. And he sat next to me with a drink in his hand and he put his hand on my cheek. I was looking pretty cute, by the way. (laughs) And he put his hand on my cheek and he said, such a pretty girl. And he mounted me and he forced his way uh, into my body. And I was obviously a virgin and this is the hard part. I was menstruating. I finally was able to push him away, but not before he did the, the, the job. And I ran to the door and I said, Don't get near me, don't touch me. And I was crying. And he said, No, no, no. He said, No, no, don't get near me. Don't touch me. And I rang the elevator door uh, uh, button. And luckily it was right there. And I got in the elevator just weeping and and uh, frightened that I would be pregnant. And had I not probably been menstruating, I probably would pregnant because he said he told me later that he did that on purpose he was hoping i'd get pregnant <laughs> what a guy huh wow the, wow the worst yeah it was it was truly horrible the worst part of this story is that uh i went back to him as a client a few weeks later because he was the agent i didn't know what else to do I didn't even understand that I had been defiled. Those kind of words didn't even exist in my vocabulary of that time. I was a very unsophisticated young girl. And actually I was a very young for my age always. I always looked young. Uh, I've never forgotten that. And I've never forgotten the fact that he said to me, I was hoping you'd get pregnant. It let that left me speechless. What can you say? You're a beast. You're a you know you're a terrible person. You're evil. I was speechless. Well, I appreciate I, you you
0: sharing that story. Um and and you know sharing it in in your memoir as well in the documentary.
1: It's hard to do it because of the circumstances and because. I had just become, as my mother would say, a young lady recently. You know what that means. That's when you get your period. Today, you are a young woman. And uh, I've not forgotten every detail of that, every detail. I wonder if if we
0: might uh, move forward then into happier times in your career, which is, you know, for example, uh, I remember the first time uh, that I felt represented in media was watching you as Anita. And it was a whole thing. My mother made, yeah, she made a whole production. She got, you know, for showing the VHS at that time of West Side Story. I had to be, I think I was 12 years old. Um, and it made me so proud. And I could see how it made my mother so proud. In fact, Anita looks a lot like a young Arlene Hernandez, <laughs> to, be, to be honest really? with you. Um yeah uh, it's it's crazy. I mean there there are younger Latino actors who have called you la pionera. Gina Rodriguez, you know, she said when you followed I, your dream, uh, you gave me the allowance to follow mine. What does what does it mean to you to to have helped so many others in our community feel seen?
1: I think it's extraordinary and I have to tell you <clears throat> that's something I never dreamed about myself ever ever. But then again, I never dreamed about getting an Oscar and I never dreamed about getting a Golden Globe and I never dreamed about getting all of those other awards and accolades who knew you know I I didn't start out to be an example I just wanted to be a movie star that's what all all I wanted I had very very little ambitions I mean that was huge but uh they weren't very detailed I just wanted to be a movie star it wasn't uh well thought out nothing like that so that when I got to Hollywood and I was offered nothing but roles that required always required ultra dark makeup, much darker than my my complexion, and that I had where I had to use accent, I accent, I was stunned. This is not the Hollywood I had in mind. I wanted to be Elizabeth Taylor, and uh, that really wasn't realistic in any sense of the word. But I didn't know that.
0: Well, Rita, I think we've unfortunately uh, are running out of time. I might be able to squeeze one more question with a few seconds left, which is, you know, what's yeah, the message ex- that you want to send?
1: My answer <laughs> is always very long.
0: <laughs> They're great we answers. Quick, quick, quick. Okay, so, you know, I saw your, your children's book, and I was wondering what kind of message you want to send with your story for the next generation of young Latinos out there.
1: Resilience representation, but really that's that's in a way that's what my uh, my documentary is about. You know, after I saw it <clears throat> for the first I've only seen it once, I thought, first of all I thought, wow, what a life I've had because <laughs> I don't think that way. And uh, I think it's also about resilience and the ability to fall down and get up and just fall down and get up no matter how many times you fall down. That's so much a part of my DNA.
0: Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you, Rita, so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate it.
1: I'm thrilled and delighted. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Bye. And thank you all for joining us. Join Washington Post Live at 12 p.m. when my colleague, Paige Winfield-Cunningham, speaks with Surgeon General Dzenik Vivek Murthy and Republican Senator Bill Cassidy about COVID-19 and the future of healthcare. I'm Arelisa Hernandez, and thanks for watching.